So we were um, in Go and Catch a Falling Star. And um, I guess what I just want to say is, um, I guess I want to ask, first of all, do you like it, that poem? Yeah, I agree. Um, you do like it. <laughs> I think you got it right. You like it. Um, do you find the ending puzzling? So let's, just to get it in our minds again. Um, here are all these things that Dunn is asking someone to do um, because it's like, um, who is it, the caterpillar who says you should believe six impossible things before breakfast? Um, who is it in Alice that says to, to believe six impossible things before breakfast? Yeah. It's someone who tells her that. Uh, might be the Duchess, actually. I don't remember. It's terrible. Anyhow, someone tells me that. So here Dunn is asking um, someone to do lots of impossible things. Go and catch a falling star. Get with child a mandrake root. Tell me where all past years are, what's happened to them, or who cleft the devil's foot. Teach me to hear mermaids singing, or to keep off envy's stinging. Um, really hard things to do. Um, the funny one, because it's... Um, or the, in, a, in a sense the funny two are the two things that you would really want to be able to do um, in real life that is um, tell me where all past years are yeah where are they um, what's become of them and teach me to keep off envy stinging yes it would be good not to feel the sting of envy so in that list of five things six things um, two of them are real life, and the idea is they're as impossible as the fabulous things, that is, the things to be found in fable um, that the other four are about, catching a falling star, getting with child a mandrake root, deciding who cleft the devil's foot, or hearing mermaids singing, um, and find what wind serves to advance an honest mind. Um, the idea being that no wind will blow an honest mind um, to advantage, that in this world um, all winds blow are ill and blow good to those who like ill winds. Um, you know the proverb, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Um, usually when bad things happen to someone, it means that someone else gets something good out of that. Um, so if thou beest born to strange sights, things invisible to see, so if you are like a saucer, if you can see invisible things, if thou beest born to strange sights, things invisible to see, ride 10,000 days and nights till age snow white hairs on thee. Thou, when thou returnst, will tell me all strange wonders that befell thee. So. Go, if you can see strange and wonderful things, go around the world, see these invisible things. Go see um, the magics of different cultures. Um, say all the strange wonders that befell you. Do all that. And also, after those 30 years, those 10,000 days and nights of seeing strange things, strange wonders, invisible things, after seeing everything that there is, all the esoterical, all the spookiness of the world, um, 
you'll come back and tell me all the strange wonders that you saw, but the one thing that you won't have seen is a woman true and fair, and swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. And we talked about the concatenation of those two, um, true and fair going together. Um, that's what won't happen. There are women who are true, but not by choice. Um, if thou findst one, so if I'm wrong, if thou findst one, let me know. Such a pilgrimage were sweet, that is his pilgrimage, to find such a woman. So if you find a woman who's true and fair, let me know. Such a pilgrimage were sweet. Um, do people know why it's were there, why the word is were? Line uh, 19. Were meaning I could be there? Um, it's not quite. Um, if you were to put this in modern English, if you were paraphrasing this for fourth grader, would well, be sweet. Would be, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, that's a subjunctive. Um, so we don't really have the subjunctive anymore in English or barely have it. Um, if you talk about so be it, um, you know, so be it. Um, that's a subjunctive. Um, but um, generally we use the conditional now, so it would be sweet if such a pilgrimage were possible. Um, but in older forms of English, and still barely hanging on in formal English, um, you get the subjunctive. So the were there is subjunctive, but we would say in modern English would be. Um, so if thou findst one, let me know. <coughs> such a pilgrimage were sweet. I would love that. I would love to find such a woman. Yet do not. Don't let me know. Yet do not. I would not go. Though at next door we might meet, even if she was next door to where I live. Though she were true when you met her, and last till you write your letter, that is when you write me that you found a woman true and fair. So it's not only, it's as soon as you saw such a one, you would want to let me know immediately. Um, it's not that you would come back after 10,000 days and nights and tell me all the stuff that you saw. You would tell me immediately, you'd write me a letter. and. Um, so she, you met her, and she was true, and you sat down to write me this, and she was still true while you're writing the letter, which you know can take five or ten minutes. <laughs> um, yet she will be false ere I come to two or three. Um, so what do we make of those last lines? I've always found them puzzling. Um, and somehow great also, simultaneously puzzling and great. And um, that's an, always an interesting characteristic of poetry, when um, whatever you like about it is also something that you can't quite um, uh, piece out. But maybe you can. Um, I've seen lots of um, paraphrases of the end of this poem, and none of them seems right to me. But how would you paraphrase it? This is a way of saying, you know, that I don't know what the right answer is, and I'm not fishing. I mean, I never fish, but I'm definitely not fishing now. Yeah. Maybe this is okay. Maybe he says until I write the letter, and then she'll be false because here I come. Um, oh, never mind. I was gonna say two or three men like with me. Yeah. Oh, I see. That, you know what I'm saying? You mean he's gonna he's gonna come with his entourage? Or or more people come because she's. Yeah, so, so lots of men will come. 
and she um, won't be true anymore. And she won't be true. Okay. Um, why wouldn't she just pick one of them though to be true to? Because there's no woman true. Yeah. She's a woman. Because she's done. Okay, because she's a woman according to Dunn, um, and therefore she won't be fair. But he says, if you find a uh, true and fair. But he says, say you do find one, you know, this magical and amazing thing. Say you do find one. Um, don't even tell me about it, because by the time I get there, she'll have been false to two or three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I read it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but... Do you find that a puzzling ending or not? I mean, clearly that's literally what he's saying. That is that, um, don't tell me because um, by the time I got there, she will have been false to two or three. Um, I think literally, yeah, that is what it means. Um, hey, but um, why does that cap off the poem? I don't know. Am, am, is this not puzzling to you? I'm sorry. It's okay. Abby. Um, well, I'm curious about the fact that, like, if he says that she'll have been untrue, like, what exactly was he using, were they using to, like, say she was true in the first place? If, like, if they just knew that she wasn't then going to be true, like... Yeah, okay, good, exactly. That is, so what's the criterion for her being true? Um, so a way of putting this, I mean, we shouldn't get too literal-minded about exactly what would have happened, but here the friend, let's just say the addressee, the friend, um, goes and, um, hey, goes and finds um, this woman and um, recognizes her somehow as a true woman. How would he recognize her as one? Um, Maybe by trying to, like, get her to hit on him or something, or, like, making advances, and she, like, repels his advances because she already has someone else. Well, but if she has someone else, what's the point of Dunn going to go visit her? That's true. So, so is she ugly? Um, no, it's, it, it's uh, find a woman true and fair if you find one. That is a woman who is true and fair. Um, okay, I'd let, let me just say again, I said it, but I'm going to say it again. Um, I find this poem really, really beautiful. And um, it's a poem of Dunn's that you know pretty much everyone loves. Um, it's one of those poems that um, if you like poems, you like this poem. Um, and um, I find somehow that um, just the minimal thing that I can say about it is that there's the end has a twist. The whole poem is kind of twisty, but the end has a twist. Um, but I don't quite get, and the twist feels right to the end of the poem. That is, it feels right that there should be a twist. And yet I don't quite get what that twist is. Um, the obvi- you know, it's obviously a twist. That is, um, if you find someone who's true, she, her, um, don't even tell me about it, because by the time I get there, she won't be true. Um, but the twist just seems to be... Um, yeah, there are no such thing as true and fair women. So it's a twist that isn't a twist. It's almost as though the friend offers him a possible twist, and he just untwists it um, and says, um, 
So if you find one that's true, that would be great, except you won't. Um, and even if you did, you wouldn't have. Um, and that just feels like um, too anticlimactic in a way for what... It, it's sort of an anticlimactic twist. That's what seems strange about it to me. And yet it works. And what I'm puzzled about... I'm, here I'm just talking about my own reaction and the reactions that, you know... I've had since um, I first read this poem in high school or in college, I can't remember, um, is that somehow the ending feels climactic, and yet as soon as you try to understand what's happening, it feels anticlimactic at the same time. Um, and it's a puzzle to me. And, I mean, I think I have things I can say about it, but I just want to know whether whether you're seeing any of that. Yeah, Justin. Yeah, I feel like the, the, the climactic, like it would be, there would be great power in and in um, ending the play, ending the play, ending the poem at and swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. It's like, oh, well, that's what he was talking about, and that's, but and yeah, there is something anticlimactic about going on and saying if you see one, and that almost makes me feel like it's more like you said, like his friend offered him something and he untwisted, like it's something specific to Dunn's life. Do you know? I mean, do you know any biographies of anything particular this could <coughs> refer well, to? Yeah, Abby. Um. Yeah, also just kind of going along that, like, saying if you find one, like, that implies that there's, they might still be looking, even even though they know that it doesn't exist, but they're still looking anyway, which is maybe reflective of something about them. Yeah. So th what we know about Dunn's life is, is what we know is sketchy, is spotty. Um, but it seems... Uh, it would seem very strange if it turned out that um, he wasn't himself, in fact, loving both fair and brown, her whom abundance melts and her whom want betrays, her whom the country formed and whom the town, etc. Um, it seems very, very unlikely that um, he wasn't um, mul multiply sexually experienced, probably all heterosexual, but um, with multiple heterosexual experiences. Um, and as you see, there's a certain kind of... He flirts with hypocrisy, um, but that's because he flirts with everything. <laughs> um, and um, it's not, he's not really hypocritical because what he's basically saying is, I can love any woman except someone who's true. That I really don't want. Can't get involved in that. Um, that gets you into trouble. Um, and uh, so it's not as though um, at least his poetic persona is not on the whole looking for um, someone to be true to him. You know, the general, this is something that Shakespeare plays with, but in Shakespeare's sonnets, um, he complains that he's seeing two people and he's really pissed off that neither of them is being true to him because they're actually seeing each other as well. Um, and um, the point, the irony, which Shakespeare is quite well aware of, is that it's a bit much for him to be pissed off that both his lovers are being polygamous when the very fact that he's seeing two people means that that's what he's doing. Um, so it's a little bit hard to say, you know, well, you know, she's, she's not being, being, being monogamous with me and he's not being monogamous with me and none of the people that I'm having sex with is being monogamous with me. It's just so unfair. Um, and the point is, well, no, actually, that would be the very definition of fairness. Um, yeah? Isn't it kind of like a romantic reading? I don't, 
I don't even know if Dunn would like actually want this, but I kind of feel like he like wants the reader to kind of like hold out hope there's like a true woman, even though he doesn't really believe it. Okay, nice. I think that's I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. That is that there there's this list of beautiful things, catching a falling star, saying where the past years are, um, hearing mermaids singing, and so on. And in that list of beautiful things, there's um, the idea of a woman who's true and fair. And the idea that, that you could find such a woman, that um, that would be one of those remarkable things that someone gifted with second sight. Um, one of the gifts that, that someone gifted with second sight would be provided for by that gift. Um, so it's certainly framed the idea of a woman who's true and fair and the sweet pilgrimage to see her is certainly framed um, as a lovely vision, a lovely sight. Um, and that in itself is, is nice. Um, that in itself is, is um, um, a really interesting way of picturing her in, you could call it in a subjunctive mode, um, it would be great it, um, to think of such a person. It would be great if such a person really existed. Um, I guess one thing to say about the difference between subjunctive and um, conditional is the subjunctive has a little bit more force, probably, mentally has a little bit more force than the conditional, in the sense that... Um, what you're saying when you're using subjunctive is to say, if this were real, and that's subjunctive also, by the way, if you say, if I were you, rather than if I was you, that's a proper use of the subjunctive. People are kind of um, losing that. What would you say? If I were you, I wouldn't do that? Or um, if I was you, I would break up with him. You'd say, if I were you? Yeah. Um, okay, so um, there was a New Yorker piece the other day um, in Shouts and Murmurs by Jesse Eisenberg. You know who he is? Yeah, so it's actually really good. Really? What? Sorry, I hate Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> Do you? I hate his acting. Are you sure you don't just hate Mark Zuckerberg? I'm sure. I've never seen that movie. I'm, oh, really? Yeah. I just don't. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to derail this. Oh, no. I'm just interesting. That's okay. Well, he's really good in The Social Network. Um, I think he's really good. Um, when Mark Zuckerberg complained about the movie, he sounded just like Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> um, at any rate, he, has, he had a really good piece in The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago, which had the unfortunate title, which was, If I Was Fluent In, and um, the first language he imagines himself fluent in is French. Um, and it's if I was fluent in French, and then he mentions this dialogue where two French people are saying, oh, look at that stupid American over there. He doesn't know what we're saying. He doesn't know how stupid we think he is. We're just making fun of him to his face, but because he is uneducated, um, he doesn't know it. Plus, they're all obese. And then, and then I would say to them um, something like, oh, but I do understand your language. And then they would say, oh, we are not worthy of you. Americans are really great. You are absolutely brilliant. <laughs> so that's if I was fluent in French. Then he goes through several other languages that, um, with different results for what his fluency would be. But if I was fluent in is a bad title. It should be if I were fluent in. That's why. Especially in the French has a subjunctive so prominently, right? Exactly. And especially since it's the New Yorker, which is supposed to not make grammatical errors. Um, 
that was that was one of their um, claims to virtue for many many years is that they didn't do that sort of thing, but now they did. Mm-hmm. At any rate, the idea is when you use a conditional, um, what you're saying is things are not really like this, um, and if things if if they would be different, or if they change so that they are like this, then blah blah blah. Um, but um, the subjunctive is rather something like, imagine this thing that isn't true really being true. So it kind of um, says, imagine this as a reality. Not just imagine what it would be like if, which is the conditional, but imagine it even though it isn't. Imagine that it's really so even though it isn't. So such a pilgrimage were sweet um, means, yeah, that would just be so great if if that were real, if that, um, not only imagining such a woman, but imagining that such a woman was real. Um, Philosophically, this is, um, Bertrand Russell has a famous example of um, a statement that um, isn't true, but whose, whose negation is also not true. You know, the idea in logic, the simplest idea of logic is that if, that if um, P is, if, you, if P is true, then not P is false, or if P is false, then not P is true. Um, if it's um, sunny, then it's false that it's not sunny. If it's not sunny, then it's false that it's sunny. That's uh, one of the most basic ideas, the definition of not in logic. Um, but then Bertrand Russell says, okay, so how about um, the present king of France is bald? That's obviously not true. Um, However, it's not the case, it's no truer to say that the present king of France is not bald. Um, Why? Because there is no present king of France. Um, So what you have is a picture of something. Um, This is um, the sense, the meaning of the sentence, Um, but the sentence doesn't have a referent. There is no present king of France about whom the statement that person is bald or that person is not bald can attach. The present king of France doesn't exist, and therefore neither of those two statements um, is true or false. Neither the statement nor its contradiction is true. Um, so the subjunctive is something like, the, the conditional would be something like, if there were a present king of France, he would be bald, or he would not be bald. Um, but the subjunctive is, imagine there really is a present king of France, not if such a thing would be, but imagine there really is. Then, what would we say about that thing that we're imagining, not only imagining, but imagining as real? So um, I think that's a useful, very subtle but useful distinction. You can imagine something, and then you can imagine that it's real. And imagining something and imagining that it's real, they'll often feel like they're the same thing, but they're not. When you imagine that something is real, it takes a lot more effort, a lot more mental effort, um, to imagine that something is real. Um, And you put a lot more passion into it. And I think the subjunctive catches that in a way that the conditional doesn't quite. Um, So that's just a general remark on the subjunctive. Um, But yeah, in this case, um, I think you're right that it's as though he's imagining that she's real. Um, Not only imagining her, but imagining that she's real. Um, 
So then what about the end? What do we think of 2, comma, or 3? I mean, that always struck me as a, as a strange last line. It works, but it shouldn't. Yeah. I almost read that as she'll be false before I count to three. Like, that was sort of what it, but I know it, it's, it lines up more with two, two, or three people, but that's sort of what it evoked for me. All right. Um, so false ere I count to two or three. Um, or till I write two or three lines of a letter. Um, although he's, it's the, um, it's the traveler who's writing the letter to him. Oh, right. right? And he's saying, then I'll, I'll go there immediately, next door. I'll make my pilgrimage next door if that's where she is. But by the time I get there, she will have been, she will have been false. Um, and I think it would be come to two <coughs> rather than come comma to two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe the two or three. Like, if, he, if this guy found a woman that was fair and true, he would want her. So he would go for her. And then when Don comes... And maybe she'd go for Don, so then she would be unfaithful to both of them, and then they maybe there's a third, and she wasn't even faithful. Uh huh. Alrighty. Okay. Um. But that then kind of goes against what Abby was pointing out, which is that somehow whatever makes her true, that's a fact about her. Um, and it's what makes her true isn't the fact that no one has courted her, presumably. Um. What makes her true is that's the kind of person she is, um, and and that's the kind of person Dunn is looking for. Um, yeah. I wonder if it um, kind of picks up on this idea of a strange wonder. So, you know, if we think about a woman true and fair, yes, she can be a type of strange wonder. But the sense of the two comma three, it it makes her more strange in in the sense that she's even you know, more, um, you know, outlandish than we would conceive of her in a more, um, like a modest or prosaic imagining of her, if that makes any sense. Say it again? Like, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to weave in what I just said with what you were saying about there's one thing to imagine someone, but imagine someone is real. And so... I'm kind of taking it as like there's one thing to imagine someone and then to imagine her as even more strange. I need to probably think about this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I think I think he's saying that she'll be false. I think the emphasis is ere I come. Then so, if he pursues her, then she'll be false. Well, to uh, to to him. So if she gets his heart set on her, that will. Necessarily, yeah, she has yeah, to be like it's his yeah. point. So he like, has to avoid her to keep her true. Every, In other words, I can't yeah. pursue her so that she remains. Like his point is, every woman I like, yeah. not only does nowhere live a woman true and fair, but particularly every woman I fall in love with is un, becomes yeah. untrue. So therefore, if there was this one woman, I would have to avoid her to keep her true. Yeah, really but you cool mean point. just. Out of bad luck, kind of Woody yeah, Allen-ish. Oh, yeah, that's the twist that it throws it back on himself. That he's sort of mocking himself. Okay, yeah, I see. So it's it's sort of like Groucho Marx. If she accepts me as a member of this club, it's not worth joining. <laughs> yeah. Um, um. Okay, that that feels a little makeshift, but um, 
could be, yeah. Piggybacking on that, how do you know, like, if a woman is true unless you try to corrupt her? Uh huh. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So you got to know her. What? Unless you got to know her, let's say as friends. Well, this this is dumb. We're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and if we're tying that back to the idea of his luck and his thing, it's it could also be him throwing in a little bit of humor and saying, "Well, I'm so good at corrupting women that I would just have to avoid her because." Obviously, she would not be sure because it's, it's me. It's dumb to talk. <laughs> so that's the opposite of Groucho Marx. Yeah, it's more like horror pun. I guess I'm asking, do you, do you feel that it's not quite... That, that, you're, that you have to reach a little to make it make sense? Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe you're happy with what you're reaching for, but it does feel like... Um, the poem makes perfect sense up until those last lines, and then there's something puzzling about it. Um, and I think the puzzle is, in a way, the value of the poem. Um, but it's, it's you know, worth just hovering over what's puzzling about it, or at least noticing that whatever interpretation you're giving is a reach. One, one thing that I read, I remember reading this in college and realizing that um, people publish stuff that couldn't be right, um, which is really important to realize. And someone said, well, if she waits for him, then there are two or three guys that she's saying no to, and she's being unfair to them, so she's being untrue to them uh, because she's waiting for him. And that made no sense at all. Um, it's, it's like, how is saying no being untrue? Since I thought the whole point about being true is you do say no yeah. to most people. Um, there's also something, I mean, I think the comma after two is not <coughs> insignificant. As I said before, lots of commas and done are just part of the, um, are not grammatical, but phraseological. That is, they're giving you a sense of the, the, the rhythm of pauses in his lines. Um, so, you know, that last line is false, comma, here I come, comma, to two, comma. Or three, um, and um, the question is, what does that pause do? Um, why it makes the or three a kind of more of a climax than it otherwise would be? She'll be false here. I come to two or three. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is reaching enormous amount, but if you really, really want to read into the three, it could be false to two, or tying back to his idea of being false to God to, to for the three. Uh-huh. You know, so yeah. she'll be false to a lover, or she'll be false to God, and then she's just as false as I am. Okay. Um, no, so it's it's reaching is, is what the poem is encouraging us to do. Um, how are you false to two people? By only loving uh, yourself and that person. Okay, um, that makes sense, but um, it's probably not the first meaning that you would think for the two in that last line, especially when the three in that last line um, is always going to be at least, even if you do n minus one, you're going to have to be false to two people besides yourself when you get to the three, right? Um, but just in the most basic way, forgetting yourself, that is, don't try and uh, fix it by, um, I mean, you can, but in this case, don't, just as a, as a stipulation, by thinking that the two means me and um, 
the other person. Um, in real life, how can you be false to two people? Tell both of them you love them and only one, only love one, or love neither. Or cheat on both of them with a third. Okay. <laughs> or with each other. Or you're both. You're being unfair to the person you actually love and then the person who loves you. You could cheat on each one of them with the other one. Okay, so that's a way of being false to two, is you cheat, you know, oh, it's sort of like in Cabaret, if you've seen it. Um, it's like, oh, man, you've been cheating on me with him and um, cheating on him with me, so you've been false to both of us. Um, that makes some sense. Um, but being false to three people then becomes even harder because once you've done that, um, it's almost as though... I don't know. I think the concept of being false to three people is really hard. The concept of being false to two people is... Um, it has to be at the same time. I think it can be like serially. She was false to one in one relationship. Mm-hmm. Then that relationship ended in the next relationship. She continued to be false. Then a third relationship, she continued to be false. Okay, so she was false to the first person by having a relationship with the second person. Yeah, somehow. Let's say. And then she turns to the second person to have a relationship with the third person. So she's false to the second person. Mm-hmm. And now she's false to three. So she's having a relationship with a fourth person, and Dunn is still hasn't managed to get next door to say hello to him. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's what he seems to be saying. Um, but I think it's also a little bit hard to um, be false to someone whom you have been being false with to someone else. Um, in other words, there's, there's um, the category just seems wrong. That is, if you're cheating, um, if you're cheating with someone, mm-hmm. um, the person you're cheating with doesn't get to say to you, "I had no idea you were a cheater," since they were che- since they were the ones who were doing the cheating with you. Um, and so, the category of being false to two or three that seems a little bit odd as well, um, unless I mean the 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 only sense that I can make of it that, that makes it um, sort of what the, 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 the idealizing line that Abby, in a way, is seeing it as being. Um, that somehow saying, don't, I wouldn't go, um, though she were true when you met her, and lastly, write your letter, yet she will be falsely or I come to two or three, that somehow that still idealizes her. Um, rather than undercutting her, which is the most obvious meaning of it. Um, and that the way it somehow still idealizes her must be something like um, she would be a person... Um, it was hard to pin down. Hard to pin down. And maybe, um, I don't know, I want to say a person like me. That is, a person who knows... Um, who knows the way of the world, who would sing a song like this, who would um, be as much as I am a combination of idealistic and cynical, um, whose falseness to two or three isn't a contradiction of her being true, um, but is somehow the... um, um, I guess the way I want to put it is um, the way she would fit into this song. That is, this person, in a sense, 
would get what a good song this is and would want to be the person that this song was about. Um, and the, but because this is a cynical song, um, the way for her to be the person that this song is about is to confirm the truth of what I'm saying here. And that's what I like about her, is that she thereby belongs to this list of um, non-existent, fabulous, um, wonderful visions or sights. And um, if she really existed, that's what she would want to be, one of the things in the list of, of these poems, uh, in the list this poem gives you. And um, so she would. And it's almost as though the song likes her for being the kind of person the song is about. Um, I guess that's, that's the closest I can come to trying to describe what it feels like to me. Justin. Yeah, I'm, I, so I guess just trying to like wrap my head around that. So in other words, like... He, he likes that this idealized woman is just that an idealized woman and if he tried to make her real by going to see her then it would shatter that and she would become un like not an ideal and that's where her virtue stems from is by being part of being a fantasy or maybe what I would say is that um, she has the same ideal and the ideal woman would have that ideal so it's not that the ideal woman would fulfill that ideal. It's that the ideal woman would um, have that ideal and would like um, imagining just the things he's liking imagining in this poem. Um, so there's a way in which her being false to two or three doesn't mean that she's not true and fair. Um, she's both and. She's true and fair. And that isn't contradicted by her being false to two or three. Um, because she's like him, someone who, um, um, a paradox. yeah, um, lives with and enjoys it and likes it and likes the, likes the imagery here. Um, like, um, sort of dangerous yeah, in real life anyhow. <laughs> you know, to be like a broken person sort of, or like. You know, to be able to live with that paradox, just the way John Donne is sort of cynical, questioning, but loves playing, you know, with the dangers of life. Uh -huh. um, and maybe th this poem is to a woman who is like, you know, like himself. Yeah. And so that's how she's able to embody that paradox. Or also saying that the closest you can get to your ideals is not your ideals themselves because they won't exist because they're ideals, but someone who shares your ideals with you. So you can't be happy with, with your ideals, but you can commiserate over the fact about, well, <laughs> At least we both have the same ideals that will never come true. <coughs> that we fail. Yeah. Which sounds even worse. Which yeah, sounds kind of melancholy. Then you're commiserating your own failed ideas and commiserating about yours and some of the ideas. I think it'll be more depressing. <laughs> but you love each other because you both failed. In because you're both so tragic. <laughs> That's weird. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting thought, though. I don't think it's melancholy to put a reality over a dream. You know. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's nicely put. Um, Han, were you about to say something? Oh, I was, um, this is kind of pushing me to think more deeply about the last stanza, but I guess, you know, in my own readings, I, the, the, the greatest tension in the last stanza was this, you know, does this, the speaker wants to know, and but then does not want to know, and we're not really given an explanation for that, and then we're not given an explanation for why this true woman... 
um, all of a sudden becomes false. And so the fact that there are these two big things that we don't know, I just read it as the speaker or done wanting to preserve that sense of, you know, that strange wonder. I keep on going back to that yeah. line because yeah. that enables him, that is the source of his poetic inspiration and, and allows him to continue writing. And so I yeah. read it as a very kind of a practical, you know, poetic industry type read as opposed to a more idealistic um, woman um, bench. Yeah, okay. Um, so... So it's interesting that people, you know, are are are, are um, kind of moved in that sense because I guess I was just m took it much more kind of cynically or or superficially. Maybe here's, I, yeah, I, maybe this is a way for <clears throat> for me to put to to think, I mean, to to pick up on what you're saying. Um, there's a certain kind of story, um, and in particular, right now, I'm thinking of Dennis Johnson's amazing novella, The Name of the World, but there are other stories like it. Um, I just mentioned that because it's so amazing. Um, which corresponds to a certain kind of experience in real life. Um, and I'm wondering if this poem isn't, isn't a version of that. Which is um, that you get infatuated with, fall in love with, get a crush on, become really interested in um, a person in the way that such infatuations or crushes or fallings in love with or being interested in a person um, has a very strong element of idealization. Um, where idealization doesn't mean false, you know, false um, ascription of anything to them, although it can. Um, that is, you know, it's, it's a standard unfortunate fact in life that uh, we get crushes on people, we idealize them, and then when we get to them a little better, we realize that they're not what um, what we thought they were. And um, but there are some idealizations that are right. Um, it's arguable. I mean, it's it's possibly true that all idealizations are right. That when you get to know someone and you stop idealizing them, that's actually a mistake um, because um, you know people, you know, a person. Wow, but we forget that. Um, and we start treating them just as um, the, the kinds of puppets that, ex that populate our own mental space. Um, but um, So it may be that the truest um, response you should ever have to anyone is to idealize them. Um, but be that as it may, note the subjunctive, be that as it may, um, there is an experience, and there are stories of um, this sort of experience, where you idealize someone and um, the content of that idealization is, let's say, a kind of purity. Um, you see them as pure in a certain way. And you may confuse that purity with an idea of there being, of chastity. That is, purity may come to you as an idea of chastity. So a standard way that this will happen is, you know, Charlie Brown falls in love with a little red-headed girl, um, and the last thing he would want to do is have sex with a little red-headed girl because that's not what it's like to be in love with her. Um, so it's the kind of um, crush that you have which is highly erotic without being um, um, a sexual fantasy, without... without um, 
um, containing sexual fantasy within it. Um, the idea would be, you know, we're above or beyond that. That person is so amazing. The little redhead girl is so amazing um, that um, my interest in her is in no way sexual, and that just shows how much in, how in love I am with her is that my interest is idealizing beyond sexuality. So that comes, let's say, from reading a purity of um, intent or a purity of interest as um, also being chaste. This is sometimes called platonic love. Um, and it's wrongly called platonic love, but sometimes called platonic love. Um, and um, maybe not even that wrongly if you look at the symposium. But um, at any rate. Um, and then the story of something like The Name of the World and a real life analog to this, I mean, I think that's what Johnson gets right so much, is so you find out that this person that um, you're idealizing so much um, actually is, um, you know, promiscuous and um, um, non monogamous and um, enjoys sexual life. And um, if at that point you don't lose, um, you don't feel disappointed, that is, if that isn't a um, deal breaker for your crush, for your infatuation, um, and I think for most of us in certain kinds of idealizing situations, it isn't. Um, that is, you know, it can be a blow, like, you know, oh my God, um, I had no idea, it can be a blow. But the next step is something like to um, imagine a relationship with that person um, where um, the sexuality is, is of no interest whatever. It's just, it's not, um, it's not what counts. And so they can have sex with whoever they want, but what they have with you is special. So sex no longer becomes a sign of specialness. Um, what becomes a sign of specialness, in a sense, is that your relationship is not sexualized, that your interest in them is not a sexualized interest, but something different. Um, often this is represented in, in recent literature as um, friendships between opposite sexes where, where um, one of the friends is gay, so, that the, so a sexualized relationship isn't going to um, occur between them. Um, and that experience where somehow what, what is generally the vehicle is generally the idea of monogamous sexual um, um, pair bonding. That's the vehicle for idealization. Um, if, you let, if you leave that vehicle, if you let that vehicle go, because that's not where it's going to go, that's not what's happening, then you can get the idealization without the idea that its vehicle or its symbol or its manifestation is in um, a monogamous sexual relationship with that parent, with that parent, my God, with that person. Um, not at all. Um, there's a great true story about a psychologist, and you have to know this is a true story, a psychologist and a um, English professor at Amherst College, and the English professor says, psychologist, how come you guys in the psychology department never teach Freud? And um, the psychologist said, well, you know, why do we in the English department, why, why, why if a kid wants to read Freud, 
um, do they have to do it in the English department? The psychologist said, well, because Freud wasn't really a scientist, and you know, what he did wasn't, wasn't really science. And the English professor said, um, well, how can you say that? Isn't he kind of the founder of the science of psychology, the way it's practiced now? And the psychologist said, no, the problem with Freud is he had a lot of theories, but none of them were testicle. <laughs> um, I know. It is. I know. It matters that it's true. It's like if I just made that up, it wouldn't have been nearly. It's a great setup for a joke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes. So if your relationship with, um, um, if you no longer imagine idealization as going through um, the. Um, goal of a monogamous, um, uh, bilaterally, symmetrically, um, mutually committed uh, set of idealizations. I idealize you, you idealize me. I idealize you because you're the kind of person who idealizes the kind of person who idealizes you. I mean, that's all the experience of a crush. Here, I'm not describing anything that you don't know. Um, you know, that's why people write love poetry. Look at me. I'm the kind of person who sees that you're the kind of person who would like someone to feel moved to write the kind of poem that I'm writing by saying that I'm the kind of person who feels that you're the kind of person who would feel moved by the, per the fact that I'm the kind of person writing this poem to you, etc. Um, you need to open up this class to drinks or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think this is a really familiar experience. That is, I mean, that's why people, you know, get devastated when their love poetry is misunderstood or treated with contempt or, or not, whatever. Um, if what's left behind is the idea of monogamous um, pair bonding, and if there can be an idealization which then takes the form of something else, um, what that something else would be in a poem is um, liking all the things that I'm imagining in this poem, including liking the way I'm imagining you. Um, and um, so there's no reason for me to hope to make the goal of this a monogamous relationship between us anymore. That's not the goal. That would be to sexualize a goal. And um, I'm transcending the idea that um, uh, sexuality is the way that idealization will be proved, mm -hmm. um, that monogamous sexuality becomes the proof of mutual idealization and of true idealization. Yeah. So looking through that lens, aside from just transcending idealization, couldn't it also be possibly viewed as, as done admonishing himself for his saying the reason I will I mean it goes back to that idea of him in particular, the reason I will never find a woman fair and true is because I it was because of my idealizations mm -hmm. so it's in essence saying because through, through my poetry and because I, I see I have, I, because I sexually romanticize every woman I meet, I will never meet a woman fair and true. Because even if they are fair and true, they won't be because I will have already made them, twisted them into my ideal woman, which we've established is somewhat unfair, or untrue, rather. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that may be true about Dunn as a whole. I think in, in this poem, though, it's almost as though 
what's neat about it is that the question of being um, really true is a question that no longer matters to him at the end. Mm. That is that um, the thou there, if thou beest born to strange sights, things invisible to see, um, you know, swear, tell me if you find one who's true and fair. Um, and um, such a person, um, that's all I really, that's all that, that I really care about. Um, and I don't care if she ends up not being true. That is, it's not my goal then to um, have her preserved for me. Um, it's what, um, because he's changed his mind also. Um, yet do not, I would not go. Um, but what matters is that um, there should be a like-minded person and just contemplating such a like-minded person um, is enough for me. Um, because what I'm thinking is that she will contemplate that I am a like-minded person and that'll be enough for her. Um, let's look at the poem called The Ecstasy, which I think um, is relevant here. Um, and I forget what page it's on. Um, 121. All right. Nice. Um, I guess the question that that's arising, and we should look after this at a valediction for bidding morning, is to what? How important is it um, if you're a poet? Yeah, I think this is a deep question for poetry, but certainly a deep question for Dunn. How important is it if you're a poet to be in the presence of the person that you love? Or maybe um, it would be better to couch that question as, how important is it if you're a poet not to be in the presence of the person mm -hmm. you love? Um, and there's a way in which Go and Catch a Falling Star is saying that it's important not to be in the presence of that person. Um, that, that what makes love possible is... Um, the shared um, non-presence of the other, that you're not present to them, that they're not present to you, that um, what you both share is the knowledge of that non-presence. But uh, let's look at the ecstasy. It's probably a little bit too long to read all the way through um, before we talk about it. Um, but we should anyhow. Okay, someone read it. Someone who hasn't read yet. Come on, it'll be fun. Yeah, All right, Daniel. Yeah, sure. All right, you want to split it? Daniel, do you want to split it or do you want to? No, I, I can. I okay, can go it. for it. Oh, it is pretty I can, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, beware, make a pillow on a bed, a pregnant bank swelled up to rest, a violet reclining head, sadly to one another's best. Our hands were firmly cemented, what a fast balm when thence did spring. Our eyes being twisted and in thread, our eyes upon one double string. So to intergraft our hands, as yet was all the means to make us one, and pictures in our eyes to get was all our propagation. 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 <laughs> it's really how he pronounced it. It's not like he's it's, cheating. It's not like poetic. Yeah. As twixt two equal armies fate suspends uncertain victory, <coughs> our souls, which to advance our state, we're going to hunt twixt her and you. 
and we'll start slowly negotiate there. We like sepulchral. Sepulchral. All day, the same our postures were, and we said nothing all the day. If any, so by love refined, that he soul's language understood, and by good, good love were grown all mind, within convenient distance stood. He, though he knew not, knew not which soul spake, because both meant both spake the same, might thence a new concoction take, and part far purer than he came. This ecstasy, ecstasy doth unperplex. We said, and tell us what we love. We see by this it was not said. We see, we saw, not what did move, but as all several souls contain, mixture of things they know not what. Love, these mixed souls doth mix again, and makes both one, each this and that. A single violet transplant, the strength, the color, the size, all which before was poor and scant, redoubles still and multiplies. When love was one another so, inter, in, in, oh, inter and animates? Uh -huh. Two souls, the abler soul, which thence doth flow, defects of loneliness controls. We then, who are this new soul, know of what we are composed and made. For the atomies of which we grow are souls whom no change can invade. But oh, alas, so long, so far, our bodies, why do we forbear? They are ours, though they are not we. We are the intelligences, they are a sphere. We owe them thanks, because they thus, dust to us at first convey, yielded their forces sense to us, now are dross to us but allay. On man's, man heaven's influence works not so, but that it first imprints the air, so soul into the soul may flow, though it to body first repair. As our blood labors to beget, spirits as like souls as it can, because such fingers need to knit, that settle not which makes us man. So must pure lovers' souls descend to affections and to faculties, which sense may reach and apprehend. Else a great prince in prison lies. To our bodies turn we then, that so weak men on love revealed may look, love's mysteries and souls do grow, but yet the body is his book. And if some lover, such as we, have heard this dialogue of one, let him still mark us, he shall see small change when we are to God. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, it's hard. Um, but um, worth going through. So, he's talking to her, um, or they're talking to each other. It's a dialogue of one. What is, what's the paradox in the idea of a dialogue of one? That's a monologue, not a dialogue. Well, yeah, if, if it's a monologue, <coughs> um, then only one person is speaking. If it's a dialogue of one, it's as though two people are speaking, but they're saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what he's saying um, in line, um, uh, started line 21. If any, so by love refined, that he soul's language understood, and by good love were grown all mind, within convenient distance stood, he, though he knew not which soul spake, because both meant both spake the same, might then a new concoction take, and part far purer than he came. So both souls are meaning, and therefore both souls are speaking the same thing. 
And then you get the speech tag, as it's called. This ecstasy doth unperplex we said and tell us what we love. Um, so we said is, the, is um, first person plural, um, not like God, in, or maybe it is like God in Genesis. Um, but it's, they both said it. Um, but they said it with one voice. Um, so it's not I said, it's we said. We were saying the same thing. We were speaking and meaning the same thing. Um, so that would be that mutual idealization where each feels um, and thinks that the other, or knows that the other feels the same um, as him or her. Um, so here's the story. The ecstasy, do people know literally what the word ecstasy means? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like out-of-body experience. Yeah, it means to stand outside. It's ex, that is outside, and stasis, standing outside. Um, so it's out-of-body experience. It's, it's not being in the body, but it's just being, it's transcending it. Um, so there we were, um, sitting um, with our heads like on a pillow um, on um, a little swelling bit of land. Where like a pillow on a bed. So like a pillow on a bed as though they're in bed together, but like a pillow on a bed because they're not. They're outside, um, just lying outside, their heads on, um, on a little bit of higher ground. Where, like a pillow on a bed, a pregnant bank swelled up to rest the violet's reclining head. Um, So it's a bank with violets growing there. The violets are going to come back. Um, And the two of them, it turns out, they don't have their heads on the bank, but they're sitting there, sat we two, one another's best. Um, So they loved each other. They sat together, sat we two, one another's best. Our hands were firmly cemented is probably how you pronounce it. Our hands were firmly cemented with a fast bomb which thence did spring. Um, So our hands, we were holding our hands and our hands were moist um, um, with emotion, essentially. I wonder what the footnote says there. What does it say? It says that bomb has a connotation that means like life essence. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, it says, see, yeah. Um, the note on page 443, right? Um, very unhelpful. My <laughs> um, addition says something about literally and euphemistically sweat part of the u- the usual jokes about oily palms, thus suggestive of lustfulness. Yeah, your note is a little bit too um, full of itself. Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little full of itself. It is. Um, <laughs> No, the idea would be that, that um, the moistness of your hand is indicating that you're not um, trying to withdraw, and you're not, you're not um, that there's a kind of relaxation there. Um, that is, uh, you know, if you're holding hands with someone, you don't want their hands to be totally dry. That would mean that, that somehow they're, they're um, just freezing up. So, you know, don't overread it. It's, bomb is a word that you always want to overread, but in this case, and done is a poet you always want to overread, but in this case, um, don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's amazing that, like, that physical contact is so honest. Uh-huh, nice. Know, and the, the communication is so amplified at that point of contact. Yeah. And it's immediate, the information right. you get about the other person. That's great, yeah. Okay, so... Um, our hands were cemented, cemented with a fast bomb, which thence did spring, which came from our hands themselves. Our eye beams twisted and did thread our eyes upon one double string. What does that mean? 
were looking to each other's eyes. Yeah, we were looking to each other's eyes. Um, it's actually a really beautiful, or if not beautiful, at least a neat image, um, because it's also um, that what you can feel is that they're doing what people do, which is looking from eye to eye. That is, um, when you look into someone's eyes for a little while, you start realizing, oh, I should look at their other eye. Um, sorry? It's so true. It is. And Dunn knows that it's true. And so there is this kind of darting, which is not a darting. It's a braiding of, of the eyes. Um, and um, it's actually kind of interesting, as um, this is a noticed physical fact, um, that if you're looking into someone's eyes, you're actually not sure which of your eyes they're looking at. Um, so notice that next time. Well, don't, because you should really <laughs> just be looking into their eyes. But if you get bored just gazing into someone's <laughs> eyes, if after a while you get bored, um, and just notice as you look at their other eye <laughs> um, that you're not sure what... You always worry a little bit that they're going to notice that you've looked at their other eye, but they never do, <laughs> right? Is that not true? You're really self-conscious about it, I guess. <laughs> but if you're staring into someone's eyes, you get self-conscious. Um, sure. So, um, uh, Aristotle actually noticed that if you, um, with puzzlement, that if you look at your eyes in a mirror, um, and if you look first at your left eye in the mirror, and then you look at your right eye in the mirror, you never notice your eyes moving um, from one eye to the other. And um, your brain kind of um, filters out that motion of eyes. So you can try this out in a mirror, and unless you're a total narcissist, it won't spoil the moment for you. <laughs> um, um, but it's if you have a smartphone, it's actually interesting to look at the difference between putting, looking at the camera using the mirror app and looking at the camera on the smartphone and looking from eye to eye, because you'll actually there's enough of delay that you'll see your eyes moving, and in a mirror you won't. Um, and it's an interesting and for a long time a very puzzling psychological fact that we don't see our eyes moving in a mirror. Um, this isn't the fact that you can't catch yourself not looking at yourself. Everyone knows that, right? But this is that when you move your eyes in a mirror, you don't notice the difference. Um, and that's true when you look at someone else also. So that here is the kind of threading and twisting of the eye beams. The eye beams are what in a comic book would be the... the, the um, uh, dashed line, the dotted line from eye to eye. Um, so, to intergraft our hands as yet was all the means to make us one. So what had we never done? Um, yeah, this is all, or all we'd ever done is hold hands. Um, so we'd never gone beyond that. Um, never got past first base, I think, is how Dunn would put it. Um but what do you think first base? The, 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 like, 18th century English bases. Yes, exactly. Holy hands, polite conversation. Yeah, 17th Eye century. contact. Yes, exactly. So, so to intergraft our hands as yet was all the means to make us one. And pictures in our eyes to get was all our propagation. So what does that mean? What does the word get mean there? Just to see oneself reflected in the other person's eye was the only type of... Reproduction huh. that was um, that was being produced. Yeah, the word "get" there is the same as the word "beget." Mm. That is um, to to if you are if if um, someone gets you with child, um, that means makes you pregnant, like the pregnant bank. Um, 
So the only thing that we so far had ever begotten, um, the only sexual reproduction or the only reproduction, biological reproduction we'd ever done was to see pictures of ourselves in each other's eyes. I could see myself in your eyes, you could see yourself in my eyes. That was all the propagation um, that we'd ever um, um, done because the only thing we'd ever done is, is held hands and looked at each other in the eyes. Um, as twixt two equal armies, fate suspends uncertain victory. Our souls, which to advance their state were gone out, hung twixt her and me. Um, so there was a kind of suspension now. The way, and that's an odd metaphor, but worth noticing that when armies are going against each other, and then there's a kind of suspension as to who's going to win, you now get a sense that maybe there is actually un, um, unstated a little bit of a struggle between them. Um, again, you have to consult your own experience to make it obvious what this struggle is, which is that they're both totally in the moment and in love with each other and staring at each other, but one of them thinks this is just fine, and the other one thinks we should go a little farther. Um, and um, he's the one who thinks they should go a little farther, which is why he's seeing it as a struggle. Um, so that's so far the only hint of where we're going to get to at the end of the poem, which is um, we really should go a little farther because we love each other so much. Um, so as twixt two equal armies, fate suspends uncertain victory. Our souls, which to advance their state, were gone out. So that's the ecstasy. Um, our souls were gone out of our bodies to go farther in um, the state of being together that they both wanted, but there was also a little bit um, the bone of contention. Um, and so our souls hung twixt her and me, and whilst our souls negotiate there, so negotiate there means both interact, but also, you know, let's see, where we're going to go. Um, we, like sepulchral statues, lay um, like dead bodies. Um, all day, the same our postures were, and we said nothing all the day. Um, so again, in real life, what they're doing is they're sitting there holding hands, not talking, um, thinking really intensely, and um, supposedly both totally in the moment simultaneously but also um, maybe with just the possible slight difference in ideas as to what should happen next. And then there's the possibility of someone seeing them. If any so by love refined that he soul's language understood, and by good love were grown all mind within convenient distance stood, so if there's anyone to hear what our souls were saying, he though he knew not which soul spake, because both meant both spake the same, might thence a new concoction take, and part far purer than he came. So he can um, hear what we're saying, and drink a new elixir of life, and part far purer than he came, because we're both very pure. Now notice, again, the oddness in Dunn. It's just, again, something to be aware of that there always seems, or not always, but frequently there seems to be a third figure in his poems. 
um, that is in Go and Catch a Falling Star. There is The True and Fair Woman. There's The Speaker. And then there's you, who will go and catch a falling star, who might be born to see strange sights, who will write your letter to tell me where this woman, true and fair, lives. In the flea, there's the flea. Um, you know, it would be interesting to pair the ecstasy with the flea as a place um, where there's um, an outsideness of the beings of the two people. In this case, here would be a witness who, hear, he, who hears what our souls are saying simultaneously. In the flea, it's the living walls of Jed of the flea. Um, so he, though he knew not which, spells, which soul spake, because both men both spake the same, might that's a new concoction take, in part far purer than he came. This ecstasy doth unperplex, we said, and tell us what we love. So the fact that we're outside of our bodies unperplexes what it is that we want from each other. Because now we are both one being. It tells us what we love. We see by this, it was not sex. We see, we saw not what did move. Um, so we weren't interested in things that were changing. We see now that it wasn't sex. Um, it wasn't things that belonged to the world of matter and of motion. Um, we see that it was each other's souls that really mattered. <coughs> but as all several souls contain, that is, all the souls in the world contain mixture of things, they know not what, love, these mixed souls doth mix again and makes both one, each this and that. So all souls are mixtures, and now love mixes the mixtures which are two souls into a single soul. A soul is a mixture anyhow, and love just mixes our two souls together into a single one, so each of us is the other as well. Consider a violet, like the violets on this bank. A single violet transplant, the strength, the color, and the size, all which before was poor and scant, redoubles still and multiplies. So if you bring a violet to presumably more fertile soil, it'll grow um, uh, larger and um, um, become more beautiful and, um, and grow stronger. Uh, what's the illusion there? Redouble still and multiplies? Uh, kids? Yeah, that is, yeah, what's the line in the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, so be fruitful and multiply. When love, let's just do one more stanza and we'll pick up here on Thursday. When love with one another so interinimates two souls, not a word you're going to see often, interinimates. So to inanimate would be something like to infuse a soul into, um, to animate within, and to interinimate would mean something like. Um, the two souls are inanimating each other. Each soul is becoming the soul of each other mutually. When love with one another so interinanimates two souls, that abler soul, that is abler, more able than the two souls from which it comes, which thence doth flow from the interinanimation of the two souls. And then this great line, defects of loneliness controls. 
That is then the abler, the new soul, the soul made of the two souls, is no longer lonely. It now the defects of loneliness, which belong to every living soul, get controlled, get um, get overcome and limited when the two souls inter inanimate each other. Um, okay, so let's pick up there on Thursday, and. Uh, We'll go on.